What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. My guest today is a PhD candidate at University of Cambridge, the host of the Anti-Dystopians Podcast, which also has a newsletter by the same name. And she's also the author of a pretty wild journal article in American Political Science Review called Engineering Territory, Space and Colonies in Silicon Valley. Alina Utrada. Wait, did I get the name right? I didn't even ask you what you're... Okay. Alina Utrada, welcome to the show. How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I should have asked first. No, no, perfect. All right. So your, your work takes overall a kind of seriously critical view of tech which I certainly appreciate. I think uh, undiplomatic listeners will too. And I read somewhere Google stalking you that like you grew up in the Palo Alto area. And I have like yeah. a, a love-hate relationship with that place. Maybe a lot of people do. But I have to ask kind of as like a, a starter, you know, what was it like to grow up in the shadow of like big tech and oligarch money? You went to Stanford undergrad and, you know, I have to wonder, like, do people growing up there find that stuff aspirational or do they get radicalized against it? Like, what does it do to kids to be in that shadow? Yeah, it's a, it's a good place to start because it is where I started. So I grew up just outside Silicon Valley. Actually, my mom's a Stanford professor. Um, oh, so cool. uh, it was it was definitely kind of like the place to to be, but I was kind of a history nerd. So I, you know, I liked history. I did like model UN, that, that kind of um, stuff. And then it was only when I got to Stanford as an undergraduate that like the tech aspect was just really overwhelming. And so as a, his, like a history person, I kind of had my own little corner, but I really remember very vividly, like my freshman year talking to somebody who was like a computer science major and they're like, Oh, what are you going to major in? And I was like, Oh, international relations. And they're like, well, that's going to be automated soon. <laughs> I was, for some reason to this day, I don't know why, just like Alexander Wentz paper and like thinking about the state as a social construct just like took over my head. And all I could say was like, it's a social construct. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then they look back at me like very confused. Yeah. Um, so, so I definitely think, and, and there's just so much money. I mean, you can take three classes at Stanford as an undergraduate and get a job making, you know, five to six figures at Google, right? So, and, and that's a huge thing for a lot of people's, whatever your background is, um, to, to be able to make that much, that much money immediately mm -hmm. is, is no small thing. And one that, you know, as a history student or a human rights student, you don't have. So, so definitely the kind of like tech idolism was there. And it was kind of when I left for my master's. Um, I did it in Northern Ireland in Belfast. And that's when Cambridge Analytica happened. And I think there was kind of mm -hmm. a lot of soul searching on the on the part of a lot of people in the Bay. There's a little bit more of a critical element, but it's kind of hard to see. I think I'm, I'm really glad I'm in Cambridge. It's hard to see the big picture unless you're out of it. So I still think even though there's probably a little bit more of a like critical aspect to tech on campus now amongst the undergrads um you know you still kind of live and breathe silicon valley and the tech industry um so so but i'm lucky in the sense that like i used that to inform my research and kind of this article came out of those those experiences yeah i had malcolm harris on a while back and he grew up in palo oh, alto too yeah. and he's obviously like their arch nemesis and it, it just strikes me that like you guys are I mean, you guys are not the same, but like you guys are anomalies relative to, you know, 
the, the larger culture there, maybe. You've got this big article, Engineering Territory, Space and Colonies in Silicon Valley. For people who don't know, uh, APSR, the journal where you published, it's kind of the premier journal in political science. Like, it has an impact factor of a million. It's not, <laughs> you know, it's like very uncommon for PhD candidates to make it into the pages of APSR. I've never even bothered to submit to the journal because I'm like, I don't want to waste my time and their time and like, you know? So uh, congrats on that, first of all. Thank you. <laughs> it's not a small thing. Yeah, you must have felt good. Uh, did you cheer when you got the publication? I mean, I really did. I did it because I heard that their desk reject turnarounds times were really fast. Uh. And so when I had this article and I was like, I don't know what the discipline is. I'll submit it to APSR because hopefully they'll desk reject me really quickly and maybe I'll get a sense of like how people are reading it. And then it went to peer review and I thought three months to reject, that's a pity. And then I got an R&R and I was, yeah, it was (laughs) a weird day. Yeah. (laughs) But thank you. I really appreciate it. No, that's huge. Um, So you've got this, what what comes through in the article, one of the things that makes it successful, I think, and, and compelling is that it's got a sharp point of view. And so there's this, I I see a tendency where like people whose research has something to really say, and it's not just like, let's work through the methods boxes or whatever. Those people's research often have interesting like backstories, you know, like this didn't come out of nowhere. There's something organic going on. So like, is there an origin story to this article? Like how, how it emerged or whatever? Yeah, I think a couple of points one is that like as you mentioned right i grew up in silicon valley so i like knew a lot of people who were like very excited about outer space and i don't know why my immediate reaction to go into outer space is always like oh my gosh why would why would you do that like i don't see the appeal of being an astronaut it sounds really terrible how does this Um, help us on earth like (laughs) yeah like it's it's very scary i don't know if you've read that um piece it was in the atlantic mars is a hell hole but it's like yeah outer space is horrible right it's like an awful awful place for humans to be and that's part of what makes earth so special um so i was always kind of getting into arguments with people who were like oh wouldn't be going to the moon be so cool and i'm like i don't that doesn't appeal to me in the slightest um but then obviously as you mentioned so like my research my phd research is looking at um like a political theory of corporations so i'm interested in thinking about corporations as as political entities. So I had Hmm. been reading a lot of stuff on the history of company states. So, you know, the British East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, chartered companies. So Philip Stern just has a new book out called Empire Inc. again, which is all about that. Um, So I had been I had been reading literature like that when Elon Musk decided to go on SNL and um, he had a little skit. And it was, I mean, it was great for my research in one sense, because it was like, great, this is exactly what I thought you would think. Um, but like horrifying in terms of like implications for like planet and the universe um, in which he is, you know, as CEO of SpaceX, right? Not at NASA headquarters, as CEO of SpaceX has this Mars colony, settler colony, and he does this skit in which he's like, there's some accident in this colony and they almost all die. I think Pete Davidson's character does die. And for me, this was really like horrifying in terms of like his vision for what he thought, um, his Mars settlement literally will look like and it really just got I just felt so angry and appalled and it was a one of those conversations which was very difficult to have with people because I feel like if you say like oh outer space colonization people might say oh yeah okay like colonization is bad like sure 
I probably don't want Musk in charge of whatever settlement is going to be on space, but like, what's the problem? Space is empty. And so this is, was like a conversation and a, and a part of policy in life that I felt like could benefit from a theoretical intervention, which is sometimes rare in political theory. Like sometimes you can be talking about things that are very kind of unmoored yeah. um, from things. So, so I felt, so, so, so it started out actually as a little op-ed and it turned into a Boston review piece. And then I started presenting it at conferences and it was clear that like it was striking a chord with people. It was interesting. It had kind of real life impacts, but also theoretical impacts. And it kind of just <laughs> was a, <laughs> got out of control a bit. And so, yeah, and it's ended up, it's ended up in this form. One of the best sources of uh, inspiration for scholarly writers is like just being pissed off about something. <laughs> you know, or frustrated. That's, that's amazing. So let me set the table a little bit for your argument, right? Let's say I'm like the conventional wisdom, you can call me Daniel Dunney or whatever. But what what I think is that outer space is empty, like you said, and that makes the colonization of outer space totally different from the colonization of indigenous lands in like the real world, right? And so when I hear billionaires talk about colonizing Mars or the moon, you know, I roll my eyes, but like, sure, go ahead. There's no chance that it's going to hurt anybody. That's conventional wisdom. I, like, I don't agree with that, right? Obviously. Um, but crucially, you don't agree with that. So how does your argument respond to that sort of foil? Yeah, so there's kind of like two two parallel strains to that. So the first is um, kind of a historical intervention, um, which is to say exactly when you hear that like Musk and Bezos and Branson or whatever are trying to go to outer space, it's very easy to roll your eyes and be like, whatever, if you want to do that, like, I'm glad that you're, you're busying yourself with this and it's not going to affect me in any way. And, and the real problem is, is state, uh, you know, expansion into space either because, you know, that's my taxpayer money at work, um, or because of the militarization of space. Yeah. But I go back again, drawing on a lot of this this literature, and look at um, uh, the the beginnings of terrestrial colonialism, and and say actually history and our literature says that these are private individuals and kind of wacky, um, you know, unscrupulous businessmen going out um, taking state money, but often you know with their own corporations like controlling controlling these things and and having these complicated relationship with their their home states and the political entities they came in contact with they forge sites of sovereignty they forge sites of power and they're able to kind of capitalize on on these kind of like crazy adventures at, into into you know European imperialism as we know it and and which we you know gets co-opted by by the state so so there's pushing back on that idea that one, the fact that private companies and private individuals are doing this with state money isn't so different from the history of earthly colonialism, and it will affect you even if it's private industry. And the second kind of more to your point about space being empty, right, is, is that's what I hear a lot. It's like, OK, OK, fine, fine, fine. Yes, it's probably a problem. Musk does this. But but no one's no one's there. Terranolius, no indigenous, yeah, indigenous dispossession forced displacement, genocide can occur. Um, and so in the piece, I draw actually a lot on um, Robert Nichols' Theft is Property, which is one of my favorite books. I want to ask you about so that, yeah. Yeah. To, and, and he has a, you know, a really compelling argument about how indigenous dispossession is sort of, can sometimes be seen as paradoxical because um, many indigenous communities say that they do not and did not conceive of 
land as property or or nature more broadly speaking as property um but but still claim that their lands were stolen and he says you know this kind of implies a property right so he he shows how these two um claims can exist together where he says indigenous possession is this simultaneous imposition of forms of property and it's theft. So you're simultaneously transforming a space, whether it be terrestrial land, whether it be the moon, into territorial property and saying, that's mine now. Um, and I saw like a very similar thing kind of happening in space. And even though it is true that you're um, there aren't like indigenous communities who are living in that space as we as we imagine it right like who are not going to be um displaced in the way that that ha or or you know this horrific violence that happened in terrestrial colonialism the same kinds of like logic of how we ought to rule and who ought to rule this through property rights was was taking place um so right now outer space right as a commons when you know satellites go across the night sky everyone can object and say like, no, this is light pollution. This is affecting, you know, our astronomical research. This is affecting celestial navigation. It's affecting animals who like use the night sky. Um, whereas if you conceptualize the moon, not as light, but as territorial property in which people own plots of it, that means they have the right to do whatever they want to that square by square grid. And so it feeds into the same kind of um, amalgamations of power and rule um, that that is very similar to what happened in, in terrestrial colonialism. You know, lots of people have written about space colonialism, you know, from one angle or another. And in the piece, you talk about how a lot of that is anchored in seeing, you know, space colonial ideas or whatever as like, just a libertarian project or it's just neoliberalism extended to space what what's what's missing or what gets erased when that that's the way that we think about colonizing mars yeah i think there's two things one is that um when we think about like space as, as neoliberalism right so a lot of um you know this this kind of period of private space expansion has been dubbed the commercial space age mm -hmm. and that kind of can sometimes go hand in hand with and discussions of neoliberalism. So it's like the idea that what's really new and weird about this period is that states are outsourcing colonization of space to private corporations or private industry. Um, and that that has this new, such a new, you know, you know, a really new amalgamation of, of public private power. Whereas um, I say, actually, if you go back to, the, again, this historical literature on the way that like company states like the British East India are being chartered and getting money and going out and doing colonizing ventures on behalf of European state powers, um, it's it's kind of a similar relationship, right? So it's, it's not so unprecedented. Um, and that, again, like we need to take private corporations and private individuals and things that have been kind of regulated to the economic realm as properly political and affecting politics. And then in terms of libertarianism, I think again, and this sort of is at the, the end of the piece where I link outer space colonization to some of the other kind of Silicon Valley political project ideas um, uh, that I call political exit projects that have often been called libertarian exit projects. So these are like seasteading like building these floating talk about that too yeah, it's yeah. Nuts. <laughs> um you know so all so all these things they use the rhetoric of freedom and so that's kind of why they get you know 
placed into the the libertarian category sometimes i argue um and that i say actually if you t if you look at these projects and how they're imagining creating new sites of rule they're not really about freedom in a sort of like anarchical sense of mm -hmm. of, of you know like a james scott kind of of freedom um they're freedom from the state but they're creating state-like entities and it's like subject you know using their corporations and these these things to create um uh, replicate the state really in many ways and so it's it's freedom from the state but because you're recreating a kind of private state um and so so that's again why i wanted to like problematize um locating this in libertarianism because again it's very similar to what what is what is happening in in colonialism yeah it's the freedom to be the state that's like their ambition in a way <laughs> yeah. yeah so the two the two sort of uh not not protagonists i don't know what you call them villains or whatever i think in the popular <laughs> imagination yeah <laughs> anti no uh i think in the popular imagination elon musk and bezos they're like both oligarchs they're both villains or like heroes, depending on your politics, but they're like of a kind and that's not wrong, but it's not enough. And you drew out some interesting like contrasts between Musk and Bezos's visions for space or space colonialism, I guess. It, how are they different and similar in how they imagine this stuff? Yeah, so I think the way I distinguish them is sort of locating them within traditions of settler colonialism and imperialism. Um, so if we, we maybe take Musk first, mm -hmm. right? Musk's vision is that independent colony on Mars. Like it's literally his SNL skit. And he said, you know, there's probably going to be apocalypse on Earth. It might be World War Three. You know, it might be whatever. Uh, Insert nuclear reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it comes up with a new list. Um, so, we, so we need a backup for humanity. We need a human colony. Um, and it's going to need to be... Uh, self-sufficient eventually you know we'll, we'll build it up and it'll sort of you know if something happens to earth this will be the colony and i think starlink's his satellite service starlink's terms of service i don't know if it's still there but you know, there was um some news reports a few years ago that hidden somewhere in the terms of service you know users had to agree that like mars was a free planet free from the sovereignty of any earthly government something like this um obviously that has like no legal standing it wouldn't actually hold up in court but but you know he this is this is his his idea yeah um whereas bezos i locate more in kind of like imperialism so he's very much about like expanding capitalism to the stars um in a very kind of british east india-esque um style so so he borrows most of his ideas from uh gerard o'neill who's a princeton physics professor who said you know stop it you know you guys are so close-minded with your terraforming of planets what we really need to colonize space is to build these floating spaceships so kind of like the international space station hmm. which will orbit close to earth we can like create them to be so luxurious so like jeff bezos is like they'll be like maui on a good day but no earthquakes um and and then we can orbit close to space and earth can be zoned as a national park or, so, or something like this right but it's very like let's like let's expand space industry and space entrepreneurship to the stars um so it's still very um entangled in in um you know the existing capitalist government it's a fix to structure. capital accumulation yeah. it's a fix to surplus population push it out yeah yeah 
precisely. So yeah, so th- so they differ slightly in those in those ways. I think I think both of them are quite interesting because they tap into this kind of environmental solutionism, right? So I think even though Musk hasn't said outer space colonization explicitly has any link to um, you know the the climate catastrophe because Tesla is so uh, is marketed as a green energy, people often attribute this to him. They're like, oh, this must have something to do with his whole. Uh, you know, saving the environment thing, although I'm skeptical of that. Um, and 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 that SpaceX big things with the reusable rockets. Again, it's harming the environment. Space colonialism is is absolutely catastrophic to the Earth's environment and atmosphere. Um, but it can, you know, it can kind of sometimes get wrapped up in it. And Bezos, I think, is very interesting rhetorically in terms of how he's he's positioning um, space colonization as a solution to the climate catastrophe. So he will sometimes, you know, make these, you know, deliberately absurd interpretations of green energy solutions. So he's like, okay, well, we're we as a civilization are expanding our energy um, usage. Uh, if we're going to keep up with the current rates, we're going to have to cover the entire surface of the Earth and solar cells. They're like, that's obviously not going to happen. He's like. Or we can go to space um, and, and Earth can be this national park. Again, like ignoring the fact that s- space colonization itself causes harm to the environment, the carbon outputs of these rocket launches, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but there's like an environmental solutionism he's like tapping into there as well. Yeah. But, and you had a, you mentioned something weird in the piece or something that I had not heard, but like Elon talked about dropping nukes on Mars, which is obviously you know, destructive as hell, but there was like a theory of the case or whatever to like rationalize it. But like, that's how you start colonizing Mars by nuking it. You know, like the symbolism is, is something. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like offhanded remarks where he's like, it's fine. We'll terraform it. It's fine. We'll figure out the details later. Like maybe we'll, we'll just warm it up. We'll drop some nukes on it. And you're yeah. like, this is so awful. And you know, and how we tr- how we treat space. I mean, the space junk as well just drives me crazy in terms of like how how humans uh, treat nature, even beyond Earth's atmosphere, to just have these these like cast just trash in space, and it's it's so disrespectful as well as harmful, right? The the cascades of the the satellites that are you know just a huge issue. I mean, they're potentially you know collisions in in terms of like orbiting things can cause massive amounts of destruction on earth um but it, but i think as you say like yeah it indicates a, a larger kind of reflection of how how we're thinking about our relationship to to like nature even beyond our own planet i don't want to spend a ton of time on these two guys because whatever <laughs> fuck these guys but like what <laughs> I am curious, like, how do they, how do Bezos and Musk come to these ideas? Like, what, what is their ideological makeup or, or their, their politics, if you will, like, besides being sort of libertarian coded, you know, oligarchs? Again, taking them one at a time. I think with Musk, it's sometimes, it's really, really hard to figure out his ideology. Because like, as you say, he's such a mix of like, Shit he poster. says these things, yeah, where he's like, 
you're like, he can't mean that. And then sometimes he says things in that way and he does mean it, you know, because he's always like, oh, we're going to make Earth multiplanetary. And he says it in a way where you kind of hear it and you're like, that's not real. But he said he said it so much and has done so much that you're like, wait, no, he's serious. Again, with the like dropping nukes on Mars, you're, you hear that and you're like, that can't be. Yeah. <laughs> but then you're never quite sure. Um so it so so, uh, but for both of them, I think uh, they've cited science fiction literature as a huge um, in, like influence on them. So like uh, for Musk in particular, the um, uh, Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He's like that was my favorite book as a child. I read it. This is where I get the idea. And again, he kind of misses. Um, they, they both of them cite an array of of uh, science fiction authors who have different uh, sort of political ideological standpoints but all of, both of them kind of miss any critique of of space or capitalism that that might be in any of these works mm -hmm. um so but but it's clear he you know you know since the end of paypal he's been talking about about wanting to get to space again and this kind of um uh uh you know, this kind of independent colony as a backup to the apocalypse. He's also kind of mentioned things about um, uh, multiverse theory. So he thinks it's possible we're in a simulation, right? And so if you're in a simulation, you don't want to be dropped from the simulation. So you need to do historically significant things like being involved in space colonization. Again, it's not like- That's so fucking crazy. Clear. Yeah, like it's absolutely possible he could believe this. <sighs> he could just be something, you know? So so it's it's hard to say. Um, but it is very clear that he's, you know, he's dedicated significant resources to it. Bezos, again, is a little bit more tight-lipped about his political ideology in general. Like, he's obviously reportedly a libertarian. He's definitely, like, against, like, for avoiding corporate taxes, right? Amazon is famous for trying to avoid taxes. But but he's he's just quieter in general about his... his um, like political beliefs, but it is also very clear that he was obsessed with space from a young age, right? Um, so he talks about Star Trek. Uh, I think he he talked about outer space colonization in his high school valedictorian speech, right? An ex-girlfriend said he was, you know, amalgamating all this wealth at Amazon, um, literally to get to space. And actually he was in the early days of Blue Origin, he was selling a million a year in Amazon stock to fund the company hmm. um, before they kind of turned to, to government contracts increasingly. Um, so, and and he's again, picked up on the ideology of Gerard O'Neill kind of wholesale who he was at Princeton and, and part of this like space lovers club. I forget the exact name when, when an undergrad at Princeton. Um, so, so, so I think with Bezos, it's a genuine, he, uh, and probably to some extent, both of them, I think they just think outer space is cool, you know, at a very fundamental level. Mm -hmm. They're just like, wouldn't it be cool to get to space? And they've been able to accumulate like the capital and political power to actually realize these kind of like childhood dreams. Yeah, they are man children. So like zooming out from these fools, what what is it about you mentioned government contracts like what is it about the relationship between capital and the state that unifies the billionaire space colony idea with like massachusetts bay company british east india company like even our biggest companies today still don't have like standing armies whereas in back in the day they did obviously sometimes so like why is that comparison to old company states still useful yeah, I think 
so it's I it's it's hard to draw like I don't want to say they're exactly the same because obviously they're not like one difference obviously is like the the British East India Company uh, as you said had a standing army and could mint taxes and like became kind of a territorial sovereign um but also the states right like the British state is very different than the states that exist today far less powerful I mean the American state is far far more powerful um than these kind of like european powers in the time period so obviously it's, it's not exactly the same um however right like the british east india company even though it you know we think of it at, at the end in, in many ways where it became this extremely powerful entity began as a relatively modest kind of like put together you know i think they got stuck in the channel on the first time they were like um, sailing out to London, right? Like they started small. Um, and and so that I think, again, we're seeing SpaceX and Blue Origin sort of at the start of the story. Um, so even yeah. though they don't have standing armies now, it, it, it's not clear how, how it will develop in the future. And as I kind of highlight in the piece, the relationship between these corporations that, that go, you know, these colonizing corporations that go out and the comp- and the states that chartered them change. You know, so, you know, right now, Blue Origin and SpaceX and the U.S. state, their interests are aligned um, in the in the way that, you know, in the early days of the British East India Company, right? Like, you could say that the interests are aligned, but things like that change, right? Like pol- politics, international politics, you know, air quotes around international, but, you know, it, it changes people's interests. And so even though, you know, the British state ended up basically annexing the British East India Company into you know, essentially an arm of the government. Um, other corporations would then become colonies, then fight the British state to become an independent state and become a state of their own, right? So the Massachusetts Bay Company. Um, so, so you can see like a similar kind of trajectory happening, say, on the moon, right? Depending on how much operational control um, the US government has, how con- legal contracts governing norms unfold in space um you know will it be like an independent moon will it be the united states of the moon right uh uh so so i don't i don't necessarily think you know earthly colonialism didn't didn't unfold in exactly the same way in every place every space every relationship and probably the same with outer space is that this is the beginning of the story but i try to lay out historically some ways we might think of like the different stories emerging yeah no that's a good point um i had a narrow question you mentioned the the 2015 space act in the piece which i i was not familiar with what what was it just in brief and like what is what's the connection of that to silicon valley bros like peter Thiel? yeah so the 2015 space act so this is under obama and i think that's one of the interesting things about outer space colonization is how consistent it's been from obama to trump to biden now a lot of consistency Um, yeah so like i think a lot of people you know trump with his space force or whatever they're like oh yeah of course outer space it's a trump thing um no but it's it's very consistent across across the board so um 2015 space act basically um the international norms treaties governing space right now treat space as a commons and Mm -hmm. so no state can claim sovereignty over any celestial body basically although again we won't go into it but like 
they're trying to change that a bit with this side accord thing around um, little asterisks to these international treaties. Um, but the 2015 Space Act basically said that um, private individuals and private companies could go out into space and extract minerals and bring them back to Earth, and they could those would be upheld as private property within domestic U.S. legal courts, right? So basically, it's setting the property regime for asteroid mining. So companies are allowed to create basically enclosures of space commons. Enclosure implies a kind of territorial conception of property. And this is more of like an extractive, almost object conception of property, right? So the idea is you couldn't necessarily go to an asteroid and claim like, ah, this is my land now, but you could go and like take a piece of rock and bring it back to earth. And if somebody said, I'm going to take your rock, you would say, no, I'm uh, what you extract you becomes private. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, I own it as an object rather than like, oh, up there, a piece of land is mine. So it's, a, it's, um, it's not to the point of enclosure yet of what's out there. It's free, free reign to extract. And then that becomes enclosed. Yeah. And as I said, I think it, yeah, it, it opens the door a bit in terms of like outer space norms. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of like the first step. And as, and as I kind of, again, highlight in the piece, this has a this historical parallel in terms of um, if you think about people like King Leopold II of Belgium, who like sends out these like really very, very sketchy businessmen and private individuals to negotiate very legally nebulous treaties with like African political communities, comes back and says, hey, we're private individuals who have, you know, negotiated these things. It's not legitimate for a state to have done this, but we're private people, so it, this doesn't apply to us. And then they kind of get recognized and, and get to enter the like European political community as states. So mm -hmm. so it's it's one way in which the loophole of thinking of private entities as non-political then allows um, sort of legal maneuvering um, uh, again to open the door to, to many more things. And, and of course, Silicon Valley has an interest in this, right? So the idea is around rare earth metals, which is a bit of a misnomer. They're not actually rare. Um, they're just geopolitically difficult for Silicon Valley people to get access to. Um, so the idea is like, oh, we can we can mine these things um, from from asteroids and they'd be protected. And mm -hmm. so some Silicon Valley figures um, who have been involved with the startup planetary resources were, were involved in lobbying for the passage of this act. We have not yeah. talked about the title concept of this paper um this phrase you coined of engineering territory and i cite this it's flattering to you maybe i cite this <laughs> paper in a thing i'm working on because the concept that you're talking about with engineering territory it kind of rhymes with with frontiering and frontierization concepts where like the the core or the metropole treats the periphery as a space where where people can like escape the constraints of the metropole in a way um but ultimately the periphery is imagined as this this fix to the problems facing the core whatever those problems are and your phrase like engineering territory captures some of that but it's also like additive it's different can you just talk us through that why why the concept's important yeah so engineering territory it's sort of a play on on what they think they're doing 
Um, so as I said kind of earlier, I locate outer space colonization as one among many um, political, what I call political exit projects that Silicon Valley figures are involved in, one of which is seasteading, right? So the idea that, oh, we can build these like floating ocean platforms to start new societies, startup nations, et cetera, um, charter cities, special economic zones, et cetera, and um, cyberspace. So like the internet. So if you think of like early techno utopian discourses around the invention of the internet, so like um, this idea that like, uh, uh, individual you know the, the state wouldn't be able to control the individual uh, the the internet because individuals could escape the control of the state by going to cyberspace right um mm. i say i you know i put them all under the umbrella of what i call engineering territory and essentially right what what proponents of engineering territory projects would like to say is that they're literally engineering territory right like they're literally building seasteads in the ocean they're literally building cyberspace through the internet through platforms and they're literally engineering outer space by building rockets and whatever technology you need to survive in space mm -hmm. um but my argument in the piece is actually these are conceptual transformations um and so they leverage the fact that they're engineering something new to appear like they're engineering something new when really what they're doing is just changing the framing of how we think about something. So like with Steesteads, for instance, they're like, hey, we engineered an island. They're like, okay, but why is seasteading different than a boat, uh, which has very complicated existing international legal domestic rules and laws and regulations about it. Um, same with space, right? They're like, oh, look, we're engineering like territory in space. Mm -hmm. um, which you say, okay, but why not conceptualize it as light? Why not conceptualize it as a commons? You know, again, with the Space Act, you're you're conceptualizing space as objects that you can take home, right? You have to you have to conceptually transform this space into territory. Mm -hmm. And same with the internet, which I say, right? They're like, oh look, cyberspace, it's like the electronic frontier. You're like, no, it's networked yeah. computers. It's always um, frontier. It's always like out there, yeah. different from here. Therefore, we can just do whatever. Yeah, there's a pattern. yeah, precisely. So it's so it's a conceptual transformation, right? Of of how you how we understand this space, which then has implications for how it ought to be governed, right? So like, if the moon is light, as I said, right, then satellites are light pollution. But if the moon is land, right, then whoever lives on that land and owns it can do whatever they want. And even though we see the light coming from the moon, it's nothing to do with us, right? So it implies and imposes forms of rule. Um, and so engineering territory, again, was a play on this, that they're, they're leveraging these um, technological innovations to be able to claim that they've engineered virgin territory or literally like a genuine terra nullius, like, territory that there's no pre-existing claims there's no indigenous communities we don't have to worry about all that like complicated stuff that they're always mad about um and we can just and we can claim it as our own and it's the first step to kind of being able to claim that they're territorial sovereigns right so this this space is empty so we're going to claim it as ours and now look at us we're very state-like and we'd like to be treated as states um and so um Srinivasan's a big venture capitalist in silicon valley his like treatise 
the network state, you know, explicitly says this. He's like, look, we need to start new countries. Um, and and he, he's, he says, so out of outer space colonization, he's studying, they're one of many methods you can use. He, he wants to start network states through kind of the cloud and kind of internet um, things. But, but, the, but the end goal is to create a, a private state that they, they control. Yeah, they say this repeatedly. It's not you're not like extrapolating out. Um, you actually had this very useful quote from Morris Cohen, if I can find it. Uh, you said a, a property right is a relation not between an owner and a thing, but between the owner and other individuals in reference to things. Dominion over things is also imperium over our fellow human beings. And that's I mean, like, it's profoundly true. That's also exactly fucking about these outer space billionaire guys like dominating space is a way of dominating the rest of us in relation to space. You know, it doesn't get to be light that they're blocking because they control that aspect of our existence, you know, like the, the I feel like there's a way of thinking about property in such a like dumb real estate conventional enclosure kind of way that is just like unthinking, unquestioning. And like that, that definition really, it's kind of mind opening. You, yeah. I love that quote. It was such a good piece. I, yeah. I absolutely love classic, you know, 1920, whatever year it was. But Yeah. Between that and theft is property. You tie these things to a uh, a discussion of New Zealand's actually like indigenous population, the Maori. Can you, and I was surprised to see that in APSR. It's awesome. Um, can you give a sense of like how the Maori perspective colors how you think about outer space colonization, like problematizing property in a way? Yeah, and here again, as I said, I'm drawing a lot from Robert Nichols' work, Theft as Property which again, one of my favorite books. So highly recommend to read. As you say, like people, it's really, really easy to think, yeah, like just a property is real estate when you've been so entrenched in it. So to think about space in another way, I sometimes requires radical reimagining. So I, I borrow from Robert Nichols um, work thinking about uh, like different, like conceptions of not just property, but conceptualizing like space and nature around us, right? So territorial property is a kind of exclusive, right? Where you're like, okay, this is mine and I can use it any way I want. And the state is going to like help me um, get rid of anybody who's in this kind of like acreage of space. Mm -hmm. um, whereas like Robert's points to, um, or Robert Nichols points to, um, uh, you know, you can also conceptualize property as like the right to fish in a stream at a certain time of the year, the right to like harvest fruit from these trees in certain areas, right? It doesn't have to be this exclusive square by square. Um, and most fundamentally, right? Like um, uh, nature doesn't have to just be objects. It can also be persons. And so, I mean, you would know this better than I do, but the way that, um, you know, the state has come to recognize certain kind of like natural areas from mountains to rainforests as um, people and to to think of not of owning these spaces, but as like relationships of reciprocal care or, or as guardians, again, borrowing from like indigenous conceptions of of space, property, mm -hmm. governance, um, then I feel like it, it just resets you know you're kind of like entrenched western colonial imaginings and you're like 
yeah, that makes that must be a much more positive way to to relate to space. And in fact, it's interesting. I meant to go to an event here in Cambridge, um, but I was sick, unfortunately, from friends of the River Cam who are kind of trying to do a similar thing in terms of of thinking of of the the river as a as a, a person and then what that implies about different ways of relating to it and who gets to decide how we relate to the river and who make, gets to make decisions about how it can be treated and how we can treat each other in relationships to those things. Yeah. There's, it's crazy. Cause like there, these meta ways of seeing differently and relating to uh, the ecology around us differently, tra like, literally translates into living differently, governing differently, you know? And so like, there's a way in which seeing how we exist in relation to the earth and space, like by changing how we see it, we can unlock some alternative paths to this fucking thing that we live in right now that sucks. So how, how real is space colonialism like how far along are yeah. u.s ambitions to occupy mars for example like how seriously does nasa take this yeah it's very serious uh this is the biggest the biggest question well, i sucks. get i talk to people and they're like oh space colonization that's something we should worry about sounds fantastical like, no, yeah <laughs> um and so in terms of colonizing mars so so elon musk has repeatedly been like i want to go to mars i don't think we're going we you know Humanity. humanity we doing a lot of work there but um <laughs> um i don't think mars is going to be reachable um for a while however the moon absolutely is um so i think there's a new york times article a few weeks ago maybe months at this point called like houses on the moon and of course you know the u.s is building a lunar base on the moon they have a 3d printer up there they're trying to make print civilian houses obviously this is part of like a wider geopolitical race mm -hmm. with china india to some extent europe um so, so moon settlements are being built already and like high nasa officials have said you know we want to have people living for lengthy periods on the moon by the end of the decade to be fair the end of the decade is always the kind of number they give but mm -hmm. but certainly there are there is a lot a lot of money being um pumped into put, pumped into this and then in terms of like bezos's vision for space which is these floating um you know these orbiting space hotels basically it, it already has happened which is the international space station right like astronauts already live for however many years at a time um and so again they're probably not going to be as luxurious as his like mock photos that he gives of these like tropical paradises in space. Um, but certainly both of both of these things are happening. And there is just there's so much both state and private money. If you look at all these like evaluations of the like commercial and private space industry being put into it. So it's, it's very serious and it is happening and it is it is farther along than you expect it to be. Yeah. It's also like, no matter how sort of libertarian these guys want to claim to be, like, there's no chance in hell they can do any of this stuff without very active state support, state subsidies, government contracts, like, separate from the standing army thing. It's like, 
the government is the condition of possibility for these guys to go off and do their thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, precisely. I think there's a quote, I think it's in um, Stone's big bio of Bezos. I can't remember, but um, where basically, you know, Bezos has been selling a, mil a billion, a million of, of Amazon stock a year and then is looking at um, Elon Musk and is like, why is he so much further along than us and realizes oh my god he's getting you know millions in government subsidies and he like sends an email to somebody being like can we get these subsidies um and so he was sort of late to the government subsidy game and that's partially why blue origin is like quite behind spacex in terms of its um technological capacity to get to space wow um i guess it's but like amazon a... shouldn't pay taxes they shouldn't pay taxes what why should yeah. they pay taxes yeah yeah Jeez, that's another conversation. Um, <laughs> as like a, a parting question, if we're, this is all disturbing, if we're sufficiently disturbed by Musk and Bezos as like intergalactic emperors, how do we mobilize against that? Like where are sites or points of leverage? How do we contest the colonization of outer space? Like you said, this is kind of far along the tracks. Yeah, for, so for me, I think it's there. It's multi-track. <laughs> not to use your own yeah. words against you um so my one of my purposes with this piece was was literally like an intellectual intervention and not like i think the way that the discourse has been pitched the way we like understand space you know the, the questions that you were asking in the beginning like space is empty so so what do these billionaires um so what if they do something with it is that um there isn't really public pushback to space colonization. I mean, th there's more in terms of the sense of like, th there's so much going on in the world, you're going to use my tax dollars to do what? But yeah. the the fact that it's private industry doing that kind of subverts it, but people aren't really opposed to, to space. And so for me, one of the, the ways, um, like I personally am trying to intervene is to say like, no, this is this is really, really bad. And these are some reasons why it's really, really bad and why you should care and why you should resist it. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's kind of a two, two methods, I suppose, of, of going about this. One is the kind of just like typical way of like, as you said, it's, you know, if you're an American citizen, it's the U.S. government giving your tax money away and, and you can lobby. There's no real like, I mean, th there's a lot of people, obviously, who are, who are trying to um, uh, advocate against space colonization. But like, we need like an anti-outer space colonization lobby um to say like stop stop doing this you know so different ways you can tradition pressure your like traditional politicians or, or state again um de depending on what like what citizenship or what what like civic life you find yourself in mm -hmm. you know different different states are also um supporting or participating in space colonization in different ways you know i'm in the uk right now right like the uk's space attempts and european space agency with the satellites again are very different but then I think, again, um, and I sort of point to this at the end of the piece, there's, a, again, a kind of like larger conceptual understanding of, of how we think of private individuals um, and private entities like corp corporations as, as like economic entities and therefore like not properly subject to like other democratic or political norms, which mm -hmm. is what I'm trying to push back against. And this this doesn't just help with resisting outer space colonization but also just like technology companies in silicon valley more generally which is like 
to think of corporations as as like properly political and therefore something that ought to be governed and subject to like collective governance. Mm -hmm. Um, And so so I think uh, you shouldn't be able to have like two billionaires who could just have, you know, a corporation they could say, yeah, we're doing that. And at a whim, <laughs> they do things that like yeah. dramatically impact all of us um, in the same way that, you know, like however many centuries ago, states were considered the private property of princes. Um, I think we need like a radical retransformation in how we think about um private corporations you know and you think like a city is like a corporation a university is like a corporation and and we still like um you know kind of like the corporate personhood kind of thing and we, and we think of them as as being you know respond if they're governing us and they affect us again us is doing a lot of work here mm-hmm. um but but then they ought to be subject to certain like collective governance roles. And, and then that's what politics is, is figuring out how to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think private industry um, has always is it has always been and is continuing now to be political. And so we ought to think of, you know, um, uh, entities beyond the state um, as probably political. Um, so so protest SpaceX, <laughs> protest Blue Origin, right? Um, but but also again that kind of conceptual transformation of of like who who ought to be like we ought not to be able to have petty tyrants of industry like yeah um and, and how we change that yeah protest this contest this but be armed with a perspective you know <laughs> do so with a different way of seeing yeah cool <laughs> All right. Well, the article is Engineering Territory, Space and Colonies in Silicon Valley. Alina Utrada, thanks for coming on the show. This was great. This is fascinating. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's like wonderful to chat about it. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Um, All right. Well, thanks. We'll be in touch.